Good morning, everybody. Welcome. You can find your seats. Uh, we are going to be jumping around. Uh, we have been in our series for the last three weeks called Spring Training. We finished the book of Ecclesiastes, and we just did kind of three weeks to help you gain in your ability to pray, your ability to share your faith. That was last week, um, or share. And then this week, and the ability to grow aware of who God is. And so this week we're talking about what does it mean to grow in your awareness of who God is, what he's done, what he's going to do. Um, and the way to do that is through studying the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, like being serious about the word of God. And so we're going to look this morning, we're going to jump around. There's going to be some major passages that if you go to the FX live page and you click on those, those passages will be there, kind of the major ones, but I'm also going to be sharing just a bunch of quick hits on what God says about his word and the word of God and who the word is and all of that. And so um, just be aware of that as we dive in this morning. Those aren't all on the, when you click the link, because there'd be like 20 of them, because I'm going to move through them quick, uh, but they're there. Um, if you want the slides to this when we're done, because I'm going to be giving you a lot of information on resources that you can use that can help you study the Bible better, to understand who God is better, to memorize scripture. There are gonna be links to almost everything this morning that I kind of lay out for you so that you can better train yourself, better be a disciple, which means a disciplined one. I know we don't like that word discipline, but discipline is something we all have to put in our life. And if we don't, then it's a disaster, right? And so, just be aware of that. Next week, we're going to start our series in Kings and Chronicles. And so if you have not read First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, you might want to start reading that. It's going to take you a while. It's a, there's a lot there. And we're going to be covering that all summer um, and going through, kind of looking at a nation that went through all kinds of ups and downs. That whenever they got a new president, I mean king, things went one way or the other. And they all thought this new king was going to solve it. And guess what? He didn't, Right? And then they got an eight-year-old king, and he was the best one they ever had. And you're like, what? what? Like, he couldn't even run. He couldn't even, like, get political signs. They just put him in office because the other guy got murdered, like, literally. And he was the best king Israel ever had other than David. So we're going to look through what does that mean for us and where we live and how we respond in a world that is very similar to what we see in the Old Testament that God lays out. And so we're going to look over that throughout the summer. Um, and uh, so let me, before we begin, though, I just want to say a word of prayer. Um, for us as we dive into God's words. Let me pray. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you for the incredible gift of your word. Lord, we take it for granted. There were people before us who didn't. There were people who died to be sure that we could have it. And they gave their life because there was a church in their day that was deceiving people and didn't want the Bible to be translated and didn't want the Bible to be in the hands of the common man. And Lord, I thank you that we have it. But Lord, I pray that this morning you would open our hearts to take it seriously. That if we've doubted you, if we've doubted your word and what it means and its accuracy, I pray this morning, Lord, you just help us soften our hearts just a little, just enough this morning that we wouldn't harden towards you and we'd at least open a window to allow you to speak into our lives, we pray in your name. Amen. Um, when God's people were delivered out of slavery, God wanted to raise up a nation. Remember, he created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve said, he gave them one rule and they couldn't even follow that, right? They couldn't even be disciplined enough to follow one rule because their heart wanted to be God and they were easily deceived. That's exactly where we're at today. <laughs> 
same thing. God gives us one rule, that's follow Christ, surrender to Christ. We can't do that, and so we're easily deceived, and we go on down all kinds of roads. But that's exactly what God's dealing with. When God delivers his people out of the slavery they were in in Egypt, you can read that in the book of Genesis, how they got there. The book of Exodus talks about how they got out of that. God raised up a Messiah-type figure, Moses, who goes in and delivers his people. He brings them out of Egypt, brings them out of slavery through absolutely miraculous circumstances, okay? And then God says, okay, I'm creating a people for myself, but you need to know how to live in this broken world. So I am going to give you my word, my Torah, okay? And so the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. They were given by God. He gives them the Ten Commandments. But because they couldn't obey the simple Ten Commandments, God had to make rules off all the Ten Commandments to clarify the Ten Commandments because we wouldn't listen. And we do the same thing today. We make excuses. Well, I'm not a murderer. Well, but you didn't stop it from happening. Well, that is not, I, don't, I don't need to. I just, you know. Well, no, that's just as much as being a murderer. Jesus, as we looked at last week that Brian talked about when we share our faith, the Bible says if you have murder in your heart, you're a murderer. Like Jesus doubled down and said, no, 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 it's deeper than you think. We're all capable of incredible evil. And God knew this. So God gives them one of the most important statements in all the Bible that Jesus actually repeats in the New Testament that's called the great commandment in the New, New Testament, where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law and prophets, Jesus said, are summed up into that statement. In other words, everything we're going to look at this morning from the word of God is summed up in love God, love people. Every law God gives is to help us understand what does it mean to truly love God and what does it mean to truly love people? Because there's a lot of false love going around out there that isn't loving, it actually curses people long term. And we don't know the difference because we're easily deceived. And we like to just have our ears tickled and things to go well and go easy for us. And God says, no, 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 you're my representatives. I'm getting ready to send you, he says, into a nation of people that don't know anything about me. And so you're going to have to live different lives. You're going to look weird. And I got to tell you what that's going to look like. And then I have to help you, give you people to help you be accountable, hold you accountable to living up to it. And so this is the most important statement. Even to this day, this is the statement that Jews pray every morning and every night. It's the thing that Jesus, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, he answered with this, and it's called the Shema in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6. And this is what God says. As he's beginning to give them the law, he hasn't even given them a bunch of stuff yet. He's, he's laying the foundation for why I'm getting ready to tell you the rest of the Bible. Here's what he says. Listen, Israel. That's listen, my people, because Israel was God's people. Today, God's people are those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. That, that's, that's who God's people truly are. So he says, listen, people of God. First thing, you got to listen. You got to listen. And it, it's not like walk around nature and hear for God to talk. God's already spoken. He has spoken through creation, he has spoken through his word, he's spoken through his prophets, through his son, and he's preserved it miraculously, and he says, listen, my people. Now, you may doubt the Bible. Let me just tell you, the Bible is the most amazing book. I was a history major in college. 
Mitered in Asian studies had to read all of most of the religious texts of other religions because I was an Asian studies minor. I am telling you, if you are going to doubt the accuracy and the authority and the, and the reliability of the Bible, you have to throw out every ancient document that we have as being inaccurate. There is no other book more preserved and better than Scripture. Not a one. It is so incredibly accurate. People have been trying to disprove the Bible more than any other book in human history. And every time they find ancient manuscripts, you know what happens? It doesn't make the news. It initially makes the news and then it disappears. You want to know why? Because they start translating the ancient manuscripts and they're accurate. And then the scientists who are, love to disprove the Bible and the, liter, the people, of, you know, the linguists who want to disprove the Bible are like, oh, that's not worth it. And they put it off to the side. It happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls. It happened most recently, and that was back in the 1950s and 60s. It happened most recently with the Gospel of Mark. They found the Gospel of Mark in a burial mask of a Roman. And when they undid it, and they thought, finally, we're going to disprove this, it was incredibly accurate to, of a page of the Gospel of Mark. See, you don't even know those stories because we have an enemy that doesn't want us to listen to God, that does not want us to believe the accuracy and the, and the, the validity of the Bible. Because if we believe that, then we're going to start listening. And the first thing that Satan told Adam and Eve is, did God really say? Did God really say that? It's his first thing. And so God is saying, yes, I'm really saying. This is the first thing he says to his people. Something else that's amazing about the Bible and its accuracy. No other ancient manuscript or book that you find, the person writing about themselves will write their dirt and their garbage. And every single author and writer of the Bible wrote their own dirt and garbage. Peter was leading the early church and all four gospels make Peter look really bad. If you were the leader of the church and they brought you and said, hey, I compiled the history and the account of what actually happened, Peter, and you read about Jesus calling you Satan, you're like, you know, right before that, I called him Messiah. Let's just erase that part. And Peter's like, nope, that's exactly what happened. Keep it there. All the other books the religious figures are lifted up. They're perfect. Sure, they have struggles, but they write about how they figured everything out and how right they were and how everything turned out great if you listen to them. And our, our authors are like, die on mountains and get slaughtered and crucified. It is, it is the worst book if you're trying to convince people that this is worth it. It's like, man, I don't know if this is worth it. It doesn't turn out well most of the time on this side of eternity for the people in this book. Which is why I tell people, if you're going to dismiss a religion, the first one you dismiss is Christianity. Because it's not like all the others. Christianity says you can work, you can follow all these rules, but if you don't listen, if you don't know how to love God, if you don't know how to love people, it doesn't matter. And that's what Jesus said. And he came to show us what it looked like to love God and love people, and he surrendered his life to pay the price we deserve for breaking this law that Moses is giving. So this is what he says in the Shema. Remember, most quoted verse of all of Scripture for all of human history, this is it. The Lord your God, the Lord is what? Why would, 
Moses have to say that the Lord your God is one if there's one God. That's like redundant. Because there's not. There's one God in three persons. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, it says, let us make man in our image. Hebrew scholars have always had a problem with the plural form of God used in the very first sentence of the Bible. Why? Because God declared there's a family in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are one essence, we are one God in three distinct persons. And we've been trying to figure that out ever since, and you're not going to figure it out. You can't even figure out your wife or girlfriend. What makes you think you're going to figure out the Trinity? And then you add kids in. You think you're going to figure things out when you add kids in? No, it gets more confusing. And God does that. He created a family so that we see that, wow, this is beyond me. Then he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. He says, repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses says, God, the God of creation in the universe, is actually talking to you. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to get a personal letter from the President of the United States. I don't. I'm not an important person. What have I done in my life? And someone even more important than that is giving me a personal letter. He's looking at me and saying, he's looking at his people and saying, I want to speak with you. I want to talk with you. This is intimate and personal, he says. Let everybody know I've spoken. Because everybody's trying to figure out who I am and they're chasing all the other idols and gods because they don't get it. Then he goes on and he says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build. Remember when President Obama, I said this before, remember when President Obama said you didn't build that and the world lost their mind? Like our country lost their ever-loving mind. And I looked and I went, now I, I, I recognize that maybe the context he said that is kind of twisted, like the government needs to control everything, but he wasn't wrong in the statement. You didn't build it. You're given breath and life today because God lets you live. Be very careful with the pride and the entitlement you carry. And then he says, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill with them. God gave you the strength. He gave you the ability. He gave you peace. He gave you a nation that didn't kill you and rulers who didn't get rid of you so you can even have a house. And then he says, wells dug that you did not dig and vineyard and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Can I just tell you, there are so many Christians who have forgotten there are so many people of God that have forgotten and have stopped being careful because they've forgotten about who God is, what he delivered you from and brought you out of, and the promise of eternity that he gives you where Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a place with houses and vineyards and every good thing. 
that you didn't build. I'm in heaven building it on your behalf. It's not about you. It's about me doing it. And he says, as I'm doing that, don't forget about the Lord as you walk around. Don't forget to tell people about the Lord. Don't forget to tell them they can be brought out of slavery. Don't forget to tell them that they can be delivered. I mean, this is, the, this is like the first thing that God lays out in his law. It's not a bunch of rules. This is like relationship stuff. This is God saying, I've prepared a place for you, bride. Would you marry me and come to my house? And she's like, no, thank you. I have my own place and my own job, and I don't need you. What? That's not the way it's supposed to work. And God is like, I have literally spoken to you. And I want you to be my people that go out and speak to others through your words and through your lives, which is why I am going to entrust to you this beautiful, glorious, wonderful commands, statutes, laws, and ordinances that are going to show you how holy I am, are going to show you how to love other people, how to raise children, how to live in the world that I've given you, and to be careful about it. Man, that should excite us. But most of the time when we read God's word and we read the Bible, like, this is so hard. I've said this before, but can you imagine being in a relationship where every day you come home and the person asks you to do something simple and they're like, so hard. Could you unload the dishwasher? It's so hard, I can't unload the dishwasher. So difficult, I don't know where nothing goes. Get up and unload the dishwasher. That's what God has to do with us. Instead of saying, Well, let me see. God, you provided all those dishes. You provided a house. I ate on those dishes. I get to serve the whole family by putting dishes away. Man, I would love to do that because I love you and I love people and I get to do dishes. Man, thanks for giving me life and breath today. You're awesome. That's the proper response. And that's the why we don't read the Bible correctly because we go to the Bible with, God, you fixed this. Everybody's against me. We don't go to the Bible saying, I just want to obey. I just want to follow you, and I believe everything you say has a purpose and a meaning, and I want to get the right purpose and meaning. I don't want to twist it. I don't want to like run out and do stuff without thinking through it, because God wants his people to think through things. So what else does God say about his word? Okay, here comes the barrage. You ready? Joshua. Once the people go through Deuteronomy, there's numbers, they're wandering in the desert because of their sin, they wouldn't listen to God. God has an entire generation die off, and he brings them into the promised land. Moses dies with them, by the way, because of his own sin. And Moses still leads the people knowing that he's not going to get to the promised land. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to serve people knowing that there's no benefit really short term in it for us? That God's going to have to bring me back to life to enjoy the place of promise. Because that's what Moses believed and that's what Hebrews tells us Moses believed. He climbed a mountain and died. I don't know about you, but if God said, hey, climb the mountain, I'm going to kill you. I'd be like, I think I want to stay down here. You just, right now. (laughs) Moses is like, okay, going up. And God buries him, and it's, that's it. And now Joshua takes over. And look at what Joshua says. First thing, Joshua says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Now, it's not a prosperity we can get for ourselves. It's a prosperity God has to give. And it's a prosperity that under the new covenant, we are promised a new heaven, a new earth, and a new land. So we don't have to go fight for Jerusalem and the promised land right now. 
We got that messed up for a few years called the Crusades, by the way. The church really did some very wicked things because they weren't careful to understand God's word. And they led people horribly. But you know what? You've done the same. You've not been careful with God's word and you have led people horribly. Brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, friends. You know God. You've seen the goodness of God. You've also seen the pain, the devastation, the mess. So don't be so hard on the church. Don't be so hard on Moses and on these people because if you look deep in your heart, do you really love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? Will you be the one that's different even though the church doesn't love God? Will you be a Moses who says, well, I'm still going to serve even if they don't? Because that's what Joshua, Joshua later says, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord and cross in. We're going to go after it and we're going to fight the battles God has for us. If you want to stay on the other side of the river, the Jordan, stay. That's fine with me. But I'm going in. And I know it may not go well for me, but I'm going in. Because I'm not wandering anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. He goes on and says this. In the Psalms, David says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Praise the Lord, because I am a very simple person, right? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Really? Because all the commercials I see on TV right now are telling me I need to invest in gold because the economy is going to crash. Everyone that comes through my feed, I get emails, I get texts even. I got a text the other day somehow. They got my name and they're like, buy gold. The economy's going to crash. And I'm like, you can't eat gold. If the economy crashes, nobody's going to want gold. They're going to want like food and wheat. So you can get all the gold you want. You know what? They don't want it. They want your food if it really gets bad. It goes on and it says, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Woohoo! I love honey. I don't know about you. I, have you ever eaten off of a honeycomb? Like just, oh it's, oh, it's amazing. It's so good. You get that sugar rush, and it's like crunchy, and you're like, mmm, that's some good stuff right there. So good. Moreover, by these things, these, your word is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. See, the problem is, we don't keep it because we don't see the great reward. We want a reward right now. I do and I get. And we are a culture like none other that has almost the impossibility of instant gratification. Like We, we cannot stand not to be instantly gratified. And if, and if we're not instantly gratified, oh boy, here comes the murder and anger. Right? I got to get somewhere. Someone's in my way. They are not gratifying me. They need to get out of my way. Well, you're still going to get to your destination. Yeah, but I'm going to be mad all the way getting there. Like, he says, do you see the reward in keeping it? Do you see that the people that have hurt you in your life, 
The reason they've hurt you is because they didn't see reward in following the things of God. So they just made it up as they went. They lied. They cheated. They did whatever because they didn't know God's word. They didn't care to know God's word. And other people didn't hold them accountable to know God's word. So they were just allowed to hurt people. We should be different with love. Because again, the Shema starts out with love. And then he says, look at this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and discipline. It takes both. You can have knowledge, but if you don't have wisdom and discipline, if you don't know how to apply that knowledge and you don't discipline yourself to the knowledge, then you're just a jerk. And if you have discipline, but you're not smart, you just go around disciplining people, you're a jerk. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding because it will not go well. He, Hosea says, this is the prophet Hosea, the man who was called to marry a prostitute and had children called not my children because he didn't know if they were his children. This is what Hosea said when he had to live that kind of a hard, difficult life. He said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. God's like, man, don't forget. You're leading people astray. He goes on in Psalms. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible in the longest book of the Bible. The Psalms. This was the longest song. You think Inagata Davida is long. If you know what that song is. For those of you who are old, for those of you who are young, like if you think Bohemian Rhapsody is long, the original version, not the radio version. If you think Bohemity, that, that's long. Psalm 119, it would like take all day to sing, okay? And it's all about the word of God, the entire psalm. And here's some sections from it. How can a man, young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11 says, I've stored up your word in, our, in my heart that I might not sin Against you. Psalm 18, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things of your law. One, you go to verse 103. There's over a hundred verses in this song. Oh, that is a long song. Like, you think some of Jason's songs are long that he's written? If you've listened to any of those on our webpage, like, he, he's not even close. Just saying. Goes on, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is that how you view God's word? Or does it just sit on the shelf over there? And when you need it, you pick it up to try to find some answers. Or is it like when you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, I just want to talk to God today. I want to hear from God today. Hey, God, I just want to hear from you. And then you read. And when you go to bed at night, do you think about it? Do you read it? Do you think about it through the day? He goes on and says, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 13, 17 says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You can know it, but you gotta allow the Holy Spirit because you've received Christ to implement the things of the word of God. He says, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is called the word. The entire Old Testament was written by who? Jesus, because he's the word. So we love to say, oh, the words of Jesus. Yeah, all the words of Jesus, because he's the word. Well, no, no, I mean like the red letters in the New Testament. No, all the words are Jesus. The whole Old Testament points to the red letters. 
It goes on in Acts and it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. This was a church. And it says, They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I always encourage you guys in our church, examine the scriptures, challenge me, like ask questions. I could get it wrong. I've had to tell you probably three or probably about five times that I've been preaching over the last several years, I've had to come back and repent and say, I said that wrong or I, that wasn't right. I misspoke and I had to correct that. And I've done that publicly when I know that I've said something that wasn't of God because people confronted me. Sometimes children, teenagers confront me. They're really good at confronting. And you have to correct yourself. That's exactly what these early Christians were doing. It goes on in 2 Timothy, do your best to present yourself as a, to God as a one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So you can do the right things, but why are you doing them? What's the heart behind why you do what you do? Jesus said that's what he's going after, not all the laws you follow. And then he goes on in James, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. 2 Timothy 3.1 says this. He's writing, Paul is writing to Timothy. He's turning over the church. He knows he's getting ready to die because he's lived for the gospel. Wow, what a prosperous, successful life. He's going to get his head cut off. That's what happened to Paul. Believe this word, and he got his head cut off. That's why I don't want to believe the gospel. I don't end up like Paul. Now forget the fact that we're all here because Paul did ministry to the Gentiles and it spread all over the world. So the only reason we even know about this is because of a guy named Paul. Because I know about you, I'm not Jewish. And the churches he planted that went out into the world and he turns the church over to Timothy. You know what's crazy about turning the church over to Timothy? Timothy was probably the worst leader you could turn the church over to by all of our worldly measurements and standards. He was timid. He was a mama's boy, okay? We know that scripturally. He always wanted to be with Paul, and Paul had to always tell him to stay put because he always wanted to be with his spiritual daddy, and Paul's like, no, stay. Like, and Paul constantly has to tell him, be strong, like, step, like, you can do this. Those aren't the people we select. We select the people that look great, like King Saul in the Old Testament. It didn't turn out too great. And Paul selects Timothy, and look at what he warns Timothy and tells Timothy. Again, if you're trying to show someone that this is the God to follow and it's all going to work out, and you're going to have success in cars and houses, it's going to work well. You don't teach this to the guy who's taking over the church. And he tells him, but know this, know this for sure, Timothy, difficult times will come in the last days. We're in the last days, by the way. We've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. Okay. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day, according to God, and that's what he says in his word. So two days. We're two days in, okay? He says, difficult days will come, for people will be lovers of self. I mean, we, how many followers you got? Lovers of money. Have you learned how to leverage your social media so it puts money, you know, indirectly, and passive income into your bank account? 
boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, oh, but denying its actual authority and power in their life, and avoid these people. For among them are those who worm their way into households and capture idle women burdened down with sins, led along by a variety of passions. Now that sounds like really brutal about women, right? Because men follow too. But what Paul was dealing with in the church is that he was seeing all these women who were looking for someone to help them because this was a culture where women, if they decided to follow Christ, it didn't go well. They, their husbands left them, the Roman husbands. They were, they were dealing, like their first ministry they started was a widow and orphan ministry. Why? Because so many husbands were being slaughtered for their faith and so many moms were being slaughtered for their faith and walking with Jesus, they had to start a widow and orphan ministry to care for those who were being killed for their faith. And he says, these people, you can spot them because they're always learning, but they're never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. Men who are corrupt in mind, worthless in regard to faith, but they will not make further progress. In other words, they're not going to heaven. There's going to come an end for them. And then he says, for their lack of understanding will be clear to all as theirs was also. You know, you get to the end of your life and things become real clear. What you lived for. He goes on and it says, but, but you, Timothy, here's why I select you. Here's why you're the leader of the church. You're timid, you're a mama's boy, you're all these things. But Timothy, here's why you, you followed my teaching. Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured yet The Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you better be aware of this, will be persecuted. Right now, every day, 340, or every month, 345 Christians that we can find their bodies, they weren't kidnapped or buried in a mass grave, are murdered around the world. 345 a month, murdered. That doesn't count the ones that just disappeared. Those are the ones that get buried and found. It's a much higher number. A Pew Research study just found out that 120-some countries out of 140-some countries, Christians are persecuted around the world. One of the highest rates since the early church. Like, there is an enemy that's fighting us and what's great about the Bible and what's great about everything we just read is that God says, I know, that's why I gave you my word. So that you would know the truth and you won't be deceived and you won't run away when the fight comes, you'll stay in it. And I'm gonna give you name after name of person that endured it, got their head cut off and went through it. So when you count the cost of following Christ, you don't just say a prayer and slap him into your life. You realize this is real and it's worth it. And you give your life to it. And God's going to forgive you. He's going to extend your grace as you figure that out, just like he did with all of his people through the whole Bible. Because they were all idiots. And they all wrote down their idiocy. And we look at it and go, man, if God can forgive that, I think, thank you, Lord. Like, it's a beautiful picture. 
of his love and his mercy that no other religion gives. Every other religion says you've got to measure up and then stand before God one day and say, oh, here's what I did, I hope it was enough. Our religion says you cannot measure up. There's no amount of good you can do, and all the good you do do is with selfish motives. So when you stand before God, he's going to look at you and go, you prideful brat, and it's over. Versus coming before him and saying, every day I got nothing to offer if you don't give me something to offer today. I'm empty, and I thank you. That you keep me this way so I don't become like the people in the Bible I read about, like Janus and Jambres. He goes on and says this to Timothy. Evil people and imposters will become worse. They'll deceive, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, again, he says it again, there's going to be deceivers, there's going to be all this mess. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe. You know those who taught you? Who taught it? His grandmother and his mother. Eunice, right? Lois. They're the ones that taught him all the way up about the word of God. You remember those who taught you. What? So you're mad at everybody, you're upset, but you don't remember the faithful people in your life who have given you everything, life, breath, they they wiped your rear end. They did everything so that, so that you might live for Christ. Like that plagues me every day. I can't get away from it. I know my grandparents prayed for 30 years for one of their children or grandchildren to go into ministry. And when there are days I don't want to do this anymore and I just want to quit and I want to do something else and get out of it. I remember my grandparents praying together and praying for one of their kids and I'm like, I can't get out of this. Like if I get out of this, I don't know what's getting, like God will just kill me, I think. Like I, I'm, I, I'm, I don't know if he'll be patient with me. Because I had such faithful parents and grandparents. Were they perfect? No. I can give you stories. <laughs> My grandma was feisty. She had a mouth on her. And she loved people. He goes on and he says, They taught you the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom and salvation through faith in the Messiah who is Yahweh who saves. That's what Christ Jesus means, remember? The Messiah everybody's been looking for, yeah, they taught you about that Messiah you were going to find, and then you found him. And then you realize that that Messiah is just not a human Messiah. He's actually Yahweh who saves you. He's actually God. And you believe that, Timothy. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, all scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, for stabbing people, smashing their head, Oh, wait, that's not there. He goes on, he says, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I give you all this before I give you a bunch of stuff real fast of like different ways that you can apply things. And here's why. If you don't believe in God and you don't believe Jesus is the word and you don't believe that he is the Messiah who is Yahweh that saves... And you're not trying to read the Bible to ask if this is true, then you're going to get really frustrated. Because the Bible is all about that. And there's no plan B, there's no other option. You know what's crazy about Scripture and about the world religions? It's amazing to me how all of the world religions say that Jesus was a great prophet and a great teacher. But none of them claimed to be God, but Jesus did. 
So if all of them tell me to listen to this great prophet and this great teacher, then I want to know what he said. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So I should tell Muhammad, thank you for pointing me to Jesus. You're wrong. Thank you, Buddha. Thank you, Buddhism, for pointing me to these great teachings of Jesus. And now I've figured out, you're wrong. You don't have a Messiah. He is the Messiah. See, we all like to have our version of Jesus. We just don't want him to be all this. We don't want him to have authority over our lives. And he wants not just to have authority over our lives, he wants to be with us and love us and walk with us as a friend and a brother and a king. What a deal. And we can't earn it. We just have to say, I submit and I embrace it and keep coming back to him. So here's the deal. Reading and studying the Bible It's not about knowledge. It's about always learning. Learning always to be aware of God. Who is God? And that's what I want to look at really quick. So what Bible should I use? That's a question I get often. What Bible should I lose? Well, here's how Bibles are translated. There's word for word, which is called formal or complete equivalents. That's like the King James Version, New King James, NASB, ESV, and uh, HSCB, which is Holman Christian It should be HCSB, sorry, Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible or the English Standard Version, okay? Those are kind of the word for Lord. The next one is meaning to meaning. That's thought to thought, dynamic equivalent. So when you're translating the Bible, when you're translating from one language into another language, there are words, like China doesn't have, uh, Mandarin doesn't have a word for sin. So you have to describe it. You can't just make up a word because it's not there in their culture. So you have to like give a description of what sin is. Does that make sense? So when you're translating, it can be difficult when you're going from culture to culture to people to people to make sure you're accurate. So yes, word for word, what does this word mean? And then it's like, okay, now we got to figure out what it means in the context. But the meaning to meaning is you look at the context and then you let them define the words. And then you've got the paraphrase. This is the idiomatic translation. This is like the living Bible or the message. And this is literally just someone kind of writing their own phrase of how they think it should be said, right? It's kind of like a story. It should be read almost more like a nonfiction book, like, you know, that's got a lot of truth in it, like historical nonfiction, then it should be read as like an accurate translation of the Bible. Does that make sense? It's like watching The Chosen. Like The Chosen is not scriptural. It's a great show. I enjoy it, but it's not the Bible. They, They get a lot of stuff wrong, right? I'm not sure Matthew anywhere in the Bible is said to be autistic, but that show says he is right? So, so they're taking liberty. You wouldn't live your life by the movie Chosen. You would go back and say, what's the best version? Well, if you watch the Jesus film, which is another film that's been made and translated into thousands of languages and dialects, if you look at the Jesus film, that film is actually the entire book of Luke, word for word verbatim. That's accurate. Okay, so, so you got to think about this. Now, the best version to use if you're doing personal Bible study, I read all the different types of versions. The best version, if you really want to do like in-depth personal Bible study, I'm not talking about reading, like just reading the Bible. You can read the message. My grandpa read the living Bible all the time because he really enjoyed reading that by his bedside. You know, it was always there. I have it sitting on my shelf. It's Green Living Bible. It's not wrong to read those things and to see someone else's perspective on the passage who has done the work of interpreting kind of what they think it applies to in our culture today. But recognize God wants you, if you have the ability to do that work, 
which is why I think the best version for deep study is the complete equivalence or formal equivalence. It's the one that kind of takes you back to original meaning of words and has you dig into those and it doesn't translate too much for you. But you should also read the other translations because it can help you. But when you're doing your own study, I think that's, and that's why we use the Holman Christian Standard here. We use the Holman Christian Standard because it's a formal, complete, dynamic equivalent. We also use the Holman Christian Standard because it, wherever the tetragrammaton, that's the four letters of Hebrew that you see there, the four consonants of Hebrew that mean Yahweh, whenever that is clear in Scripture, the Holman Christian Standard puts it there. It'll say Yahweh. Okay? So that's one of the reasons why I love that version because it kind of puts the tetragrammaton out there. And if you know how the name of God, that Jesus is Yahweh who saves, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh, that's kind of cool. So we use it for that reason. Another one is gender. The Holman Christian Standard keeps the gender-specific language of the Bible. Many modern translations are leaving gender-specific translations. That is a dangerous thing because it's starting to make God genderless when he refers to himself always in the male, masculine. Be very careful with how translations do that. It's not putting down women. It's just saying, well, that's the gender that was spoken of that language. It was there for a reason, right? And so be careful with that. The Holman Christian Standard keeps the original language in the Greek and the Hebrew that have genders attached to them. Next is doulos. The Holman Christian Standard, wherever the word doulos is used, does not translate it sermon. It translates it slave. That's the actual proper word. It's an offensive word in our culture. I get that. But that's what we do when we become Christ's. We are not his servants. We have made an exchange of our life for his. We are bond slaves. We've been bought He went to the slave market and bought us and then set us free to serve him forever. That's amazing. That's a master I want to serve forever. Okay? And then next is footnotes. The Hillman Christian Standard does a great job of putting footnotes where there might be things that are, they didn't know how to interpret it or there were maybe discrepancies. Like they actually put that there. They don't lie about it. They don't just make it up. There's like, this is it. So when you click on that, if you look online or you look at your notes, they actually like let you in on the stuff that's hard. I appreciate that. Any of these versions are great. King James version, great. Like like these are not going to lead you to a different Jesus. Even the living Bible is not going to lead you to a different Jesus, okay? Let's just make that clear. But if you're wanting to really study the Bible, here's why we do. Here's another thing. The other thing I would encourage you to use if you really want to study the Bible is there's three types of Bibles. There's the plain text Bible, that's just text. There's a study Bible, which gives all the different opinions and people put, and then there's a cross-reference Bible. The best for study, I think, is a cross-reference Bible with large margins for you to write in. Again, is it wrong to have a study Bible? No, I have a couple. I use them from time to time. I use ones online all the time when I'm trying to determine things. But God wants us to study ourselves before we run out and grab the answers from everybody else. And this is the best way to do it. You want to know why cross-reference is so freaking cool? Like, it is so neat. Like, it's amazing. Look at this. Look at this chart. I found this this week. That's all the cross-references of the Bible drawn from Old Testament to New Testament in lines. 63,000 cross-references in the Bible. Oh my goodness. If that doesn't prove the accuracy of the Bible, that's insane. 
six, over 63,000 cross-references. That means if it's in the old, it's in the new. If it's in the new, it's in the old. I mean, that is amazing. And God wants you to discover that yourself. He wants to show you how it's all connected, but you got to do the work. Another thing. There's the hermeneutical, uh, I knew I was going to say that wrong, hermeneutical triad. Okay, it's the, and, and what hermeneutics is, is the interpretive language, whether written or spoken. That's what a hermeneutic is. First, the Bible is a historical book. So you better know its original context. Otherwise, you're going to make up stuff because you don't know who the people were, who the authors were, what it meant. So then you just make up your own version because it fits your culture. That is dangerous. That's how you go. That, that's not good. So you need to understand the culture that it was written to and why. Give you an example. If I told you that the angels and the pirates were in a battle and the angels destroyed the pirates, you would think, wow, so angels are fighting against pirates. I need to go watch that. But if you knew there's this thing called baseball, it changes your opinion of what that means. Oh, they weren't like killing each other with swords. Angels weren't like zapping people. Like that's baseball. Like they killed them because they won by five. Like, and that's a lot in baseball, right? They weren't actually killing one another. See what I mean? So you have to be careful when you read the scripture. Like, man, God says the angels and the pirates are going to battle someday. Like, okay, hold on. Like, think about what that meant in the original context. And then the Bible contains many different literary genres. You don't interpret a metaphor the same way you interpret a law, right? A metaphor is like, you know, you will be a butterfly. Oh, I'm going to become a butterfly. I better go get a big sleeping bag and sleep in a tree. Like you wouldn't do that, right? But that's what people do with the Bible, okay? Don't do it. Like understand, oh, he's talking about I'm going to be a butterfly. Like like I'm going to go in and cocoon and I'm going to kind of die but not really die. I'm going to come back to life something more beautiful. Yeah, that's a picture of the gospel. So be careful. And then lastly, the Bible is a theological book. It is not a book to learn a bunch of stuff and find out medicine and math. That's, that's not the Bible. Does it have some medical and math stuff in it? Absolutely it does. But that's not why it was written. It was primarily written as a theological book so that as we discovered math, as we discover creation, we have a foundation of theology that keeps us from using it to, I don't know, nuke one another. Because we say it's not good to destroy people. We had to learn that the hard way. We had to drop a couple of them to realize, wow, that's really bad. So it's a theological book. You have to remember that when you're studying it because you can get so off on tangents. Now, whenever you're studying the Bible, remember there are different levels of belief. Three levels we talk about. There's conviction level belief. On conviction level beliefs, we have to have unity. For example, if you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, then you can't call that person a believer. Like that, that's, that's thing one. Like that's bottom line. So it's like we have to have unity on conviction. There's persuasion level belief. That's where we strive to be unified, but we recognize personal liberty. Finances are a good example of this. God calls some people to be rich. He calls some people to live poor, right? I mean, he tells Timothy, command those that are rich to be generous. And he says to the poor, you better get a job. Both of those are in Timothy, First and Second Timothy. So it's like 
We have to accept the fact that, that God has different ways for people to live, and I can't just make a hard and fast rule. I have to give some liberty and coach people and walk through it over time to let it prove out. Another one that's persuasion is baptism, sprinkling or immersion. That is not a conviction-level belief. I am not going to look at Presbyterians and go, they're going to hell because they sprinkle children. And I don't think that's the way Jesus was baptized, so I'm not going to do it. I think he waded into the water. I don't think he got all undressed and waded in, and then John went, okay, get out. I think he took him under, and that's what it was. So I'm going to practice that, you know, if I can. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't sprinkle someone if I absolutely had to. If someone's in a hospital bed, I can't get the nurses to be like, can we take them down to the wade pool and dip them, like, before they die? I would baptize them. I would. I would. But anytime we can do it the right way as a symbol of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ and dunk them, I want to do that because that's a cool picture. But that's a persuasion level belief. In our church, we're going to practice immersion baptism. If you say, well, I'm scared of the water. I don't want to go under. We're going to help you conquer your fears. Praise the Lord. Because that's what we do in our family, right? We push through. Opinion level belief. We recognize liberty. But we, but we live in humility. Opinion level belief is like, I've said this before, like the Daniel diet is the best diet in the Old Testament. The, I, and I've said this before, but nobody wants the John the Baptist diet as the best diet in the Old Testament because he ate locusts and honey. Like we all want some other diet, you know, the all meat diet, the, the veggie diet. And it's like, what about the John the Baptist diet? Oh, no, I don't like, I'm not eating locusts and honey. It, that still doesn't do it for me. Like it's still eyes are looking at me, even with honey all over it. Your opinion is that's a better diet. The Bible doesn't say eat the Daniel diet. It doesn't say eat this diet. The Bible says be careful with what you eat. God created it, and there's certain things that are dirtier than others, and so you eat stuff at your own risk. Some of you in this room, you eat stuff at your own risk. I've seen you. You know who you are. You clean up after people on other tables when you go to a restaurant. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. In all our beliefs, we live in humility and show love through truth and grace over time. Time will prove it out. And this is the statement I say all the time. Be willing to live and die for your convictions. Teach and practice your persuasion and keep your opinions to yourself. Like be willing to do that. Be willing that you don't always have to give your opinion. You can just sit there quietly and be like, I know. He goes on and says this, simple things to keep in mind. If it's in the old, it's in the new and vice versa. It's one God, it's one story, it's one plan. Everyone is saved looking forward to the Messiah who is Jesus. We are all being saved because we're looking forward to who? Jesus. In the Old Testament, they are all saved looking forward to a Messiah, Jesus. It's the same story. We're all looking for the same end. And then the question you need to most often ask is, did God really say? Did God really say that? Or is that just something I was taught because of my denomination or because it works? No, no, no. What does God's word really say? And dig into it. A couple of things. You can read the Bible chronologically. You can read the Bible in a year. There are a lot of people in this church who have read the Bible in a year. One individual in this church I'll brag on a little bit, and that's Daryl. He's on his third go-around of reading the Bible through a year consistently. Fourth go-around. Sorry, it was fourth. I shot him down. Fourth time of being consistent. Ask him about that, what's that done to his life and his mentality and how it's been changing him over the last four years. If you have time, ask him. Because he'll give it to you. 
It's changed a lot for him because he's just read it every day, just disciplined himself to do it. He hasn't really studied in depth, right? He's just faithful to want to hear from God. You can read chronologically. That's how the Bible's written in order. You can read just the New Testament a year, the Old Testament a year. These are all things you can find online. If you go on the chronological Bible reading plan, there'll be a hundred of them that pop up on Google, okay? There's all kinds of them for you. version has them. If you want to use an app, that's a good app you can use. So how do I actively read the Bible? We teach this. God, man, me, do. If you want to actively read the Bible, the way you do that is you read a passage, maybe a sentence, maybe a paragraph, and you ask, what does this passage tell me or imply about the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So that's the first thing you should always ask. Most people don't. Most people go down to do, and they start, ask, they start doing stuff without discovering the heart of God, which is what he says in Deuteronomy 6, and the heart of people, which God says to find out in Deuteronomy 6, and you just start doing, and you miss the heart of God, and you miss the heart of people. So the first question you should ask is, what does this, God, what do you want me to know about you? Second question, God, what does this passage tell me or imply about man? That you're created in God's image, fallen and redeemed. Like tell me, I want to know what you say about people, how to love them, how to hold them accountable, how to, like, how to live with them. Like I want to know what you say, not what I think, not what the world thinks, but what do you say? And then last, or the next thing is, in light of who God is and who he says that man is, so now you've got the right interpretation of God, you, you understand what he's saying about who man is, what is true about me in this passage? If God says he loves me, and God says he died for me, then what is true about me? I am valuable, I am loved, I am cared for. If God says he's going to judge and he judges people, then what does that mean about me? He's going to judge me, but praise the Lord that my judgment is on Christ. And then lastly, in light of who God is, who man is, and who God says I am, what is God specifically asking me to do in this passage? And it may just be worship him. It may just be you pause and you're like, wow, you're awesome. I gotta go to work. And then you get in your car and drive to work. That may be your application point for the day. I don't know. He may ask you to do something more. He may say, I want you. You're like, oh, you're awesome. And God's going to say, and? And Tammy at work doesn't know you're awesome. Yeah. Go to work. Look for Tammy. Okay. See how this works? And if you take any passage of Scripture, you can kind of go through this. Okay, and it'll, get, it'll take you some time to practice it. But once you learn this, it's really cool because now the scripture isn't about learning what to do. The scripture is about loving God and loving people and learning who you are before you ever get to doing stuff. And that's the way it should be read. Now, how do you med meditate and memorize scripture? Well, you can write this down. You can look at this link. But one of the best ways that I used to do in college is once a day for seven weeks and once a week for seven months. You just read a verse. That's all you do. You read a verse once a day for seven weeks, and then once a week, you go over those verses that you've read for seven months. If that doesn't make any sense to you, that's fine. Click the link. The link will take you to the explanation of this and how it works. And literally, you're just reading scriptures every day. That's all you're doing. You sit down, you read seven of them, you move on. And then once a week, you read seven more and you move on. And they keep rotating off, right? So you read them, and then it rotates to the other list and rotates. By the time you do that, you will be amazed at how much scripture you have memorized. It'll just become like second nature. That it, Oh, I know that verse. Yeah, because you've read it like 49 times. It's sticking in your head now. And don't try to do big passages. Just do little stuff at first, right? 
as you're learning this. Another thing you can do is pray the scripture back to God. When you read the Bible, pray it back to him. Just pray back what you read. Say, God, this is who you say you are. Hey, thanks. Man, I think about all those people that you say about, like all these people I'm reminded of when you tell me about all who man is. And, oh, and about me, Lord, I'm so sorry. You're telling me I'm not, oh, I, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. And oh, but you tell me I'm great in your eyes because of what you've done. Oh, thank you. Like pray the scripture back to it. Lastly, this is the hardest one. Stay in a passage of scripture until you obey it. Stay in it. God has had me do this I don't know how many times in my life where I cannot get out of a passage. That doesn't mean I'm not studying or reading other things, but there's one passage that just like sits on me and I can't get rid of it. And it's just eating at me for months. Like let, let that process play out. Let God kind of deal with that in your heart. Now, a way to study the Bible, real simply, is called inductive Bible study methods. I'm not gonna go in depth in this. Go online, look it up. This takes a lot of practice, but I'm going to buzz through it. In inductive Bible study methods, there's three things you do. You do observation, interpretation, and application. You'll spend the most time in observing the scriptures, a little bit, a second most time in interpretation, and the least amount of time in application. The reason is because if you observe properly, the interpretation typically becomes pretty simple, and then the application point's like, duh, right? So, the first thing you always need to do when you're studying the Bible is begin with prayer. Avoid looking for answers from God. Don't look for answers. Look for God. Now you can tell him, God, I'm struggling with this. I want to know what to do. But Lord, I don't want to be focused on that. I want to be focused on you. And if you do that, it is amazing how many times God will say, oh, and by the way, here's the information you were looking for. He does it all the time in my life. First thing you do is observe. First question, what does the ta text actually say? Not what do you want it to say, not what theological persuasion you have. What does the text actually say that I have to deal with? Read the whole book or whole passage that you want to study or look at. Go back through the section or the book and find and mark key words. Ask the questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how, like you were taught in school. Look and write down lists that you see. When there's a list of like we just read of all the evil, you know, they're lovers of self, pleasure. Like, write that list down. Make lists so that it's like, well, that's important. There's a whole list. And then compare translations. Look at how other translations say it. Okay? Look at key words, which I set up earlier. You got to find and mark those key words. There are key words that are repeated in books. Most of the titles of all of our messages are from those key words. Right? Like, we, we figure out what the key phrase or key words are in a book. We're getting ready to do 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and there's two titles that are going to be because they're repeated over and over again. It's going to be one of the two in those books. It's like, that's the title because it's repeated over and over again in the book. Observe literary um, features. What, like, is it a metaphor? Is it, you know, is it a poetry book? Is it a legal document like Romans is? And then analyze the grammatical structures, which we love to do, right? When you had to do grammar analytical. Now, you can do all this, you cannot do all this. Like, I, I'm not telling you you have to, I'm just giving you tools, okay? Then you go into interpretation. What's the meaning of the text? What is the culture and historical, historical context of the passage? What else do I know about the book, author, and broader context of the passage? What other scriptures might help me better understand this one? Have I overlooked anything or made any assumptions? What's the clearest, simple meaning of the text? Are there any words I need to study that are special? Are there any topics that I need to study that popped up? What other resources will I have to consult? These are questions you ask when you're trying to get the right interpretation. What does this really mean? So you do a lot of observation. 
You want to observe God, observe man, observe, observe, observe. And then you start saying, okay, what does this mean? See, we always like to run to application and meaning. And God's like, I just want to sit with you and I just want you to observe. That's what this is. We come together, we worship. He goes on. Things to be aware of. Don't twist the scripture. Essential rules. Don't manipulate the text to get it to say something you'd like for it to say. Look for the plainest interpretation first. Believe what the text means and says and go from there. Sometimes there'll be figurative language, confusing imagery. Stay with the obvious. Don't look for hidden meaning. So many people want to look for hidden meaning. God is not out to hide. He sent his son into the world not to hide. He's like, I'm Jesus. And he died publicly on a cross. (laughs) Okay? He goes on and he says, look at this. Scripture always interprets Scripture. Allow the Bible to help you, that cross-reference, understand passages of the Bible. Avoid basing important doctrines on obscure passages. Right? Like, never boil a goat in its mother's milk. Yeah, I'm never going to do that. Matter of fact, we shouldn't boil anything in milk, ever. What? That's not a good interpretation. (laughs) So, another one is... Connect each passage back to the gospel and the broader message of the Bible. Now when you apply it, here's the application. What is the timeless application of the text? What is the timely application for me? How do I apply what I just learned to everyday life? Who may God want me to tell someday about what I've learned and about him and his ways from this passage? Keep it simple and obvious. Simple and obvious. Remember, faith without works is dead. Now, if you want all of this information better than I could give it, as well as all the books of the Bible that'll give you the key words, the key phrases, how the books are broken up, preceptaustin.org. That website, all free. I use it all the time when I'm preparing for messages, series, and that kind of stuff. It is a great resource in studying the Word. So there it is. Now, tools that I use all the time. These are all free. Well, not all. Some of them I purchased, but the ones I'm going to list. Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, Bible Study Tools, studylight.org, gotquestions.org, raystedman.org, and openbible.info. These are, these are the tools that I use constantly, and they're free. You don't have to buy them. There's Greek studies in there, Hebrew studies. There's all different commentaries from hundreds of years ago that are public domain that are on there. Like great resources that you don't have to go out and spend thousands of dollars. It's all there. And then some I've purchased are these. And there are four commentaries that are kind of general commentaries that I use on a regular basis, and those are the four. One of those is more of a Calvinistic commentary, more like predestined commentary. That's the knowledge commentary. The Zondervan is more of an Armenian commentary. In other words, we choose, right? Our choices versus God's choices. It's that constant battle we've been in. I got both of them that I read from. Okay, so those are just some real quick tools for you to better be able to study your Bible. So as we wrap up, here's what you need to be aware of. Paul says, as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, that he personally gave some, God personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the training of the saints and the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's son, growing into mature men and women with a stature measured by Christ, not measured by ours, fullness, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Many of you have been blown around because you don't know the word of God. You grew up in church, you knew the stories, you knew the basics, but you've never really did, you know, kind of 
dived into this. And so as a result, something happens, and you're like, I'm done with God because this happened to me. Well, that happened to five other people in the Bible. They weren't done with God. And then he goes on, and he says, but speaking the truth, look at this, in love, with a motive of wanting people to love God, love one another, love themselves, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. And Matthew says this, when they saw Jesus resurrected, they worshiped. But look at this, but some doubted. You got doubts? You come in here and worship this morning and you sing the song and then you got a little bit of time to think and you're like, I don't know if I believe. I like the song. Welcome to being a disciple. (laughs) That's what happens. You worship and then you doubt. Then you go back to worship and then you doubt some more. It's It's a struggle of faith. And then he says, then Jesus came near. Look at that. Don't miss that. Jesus wasn't like, how dare you doubt? He's like, oh, oh, you're doubting. Come here. Come here. Come here. Let's talk. He draws them close. He's not like, you doubter. And then he goes, look, and he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Guys, so go therefore and make disciples. That's disciplined people of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm always with you to the very end of the age. I got you. I know you're doubting. I got you. Let's do this. Let's go. That's his last command. You see, a disciple is a disciplined one. God wants you to be disciplined, to pray, disciplined, to share your faith, disciplined to be aware of who he is and study the scriptures. That's what he desires. And anything you do of value in life, you discipline yourself to do. So do it. Like, just do it. I promise you, it's worth it long term. And you're going to fail miserably and you're going to struggle. Some of you will be better at praying. Some of you will be better at sharing. Some of you will be better at... Like being aware of God. That's why we need the body that we just read about in Ephesians. Because there are people better than you that you need to encourage you and you need to encourage them in your gifts. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. And lastly, Hebrews says this. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but it's painful. I don't want to do this. Saw a statistic the other day that if you do something for 18 minutes a day, every day for a year, you will be 95% better than everyone in the world at that thing. Even if you're not gifted in it. If you discipline yourself to study math 18 minutes a day, you're probably going to be better than 95% of the people in the world who don't study math or don't care about it. Like, it's that easy, and we have all the resources to do it at our fingertips, and instead we're looking at cat videos. I'm just as guilty as you are. Like, what am I doing? Like, goes on, and he says, later on, however, it yields fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained in it. It doesn't yield fruit if you haven't been trained. It won't yield fruit. You'll wonder where the fruit is. Well, you didn't, you didn't water it. <laughs> you didn't fertilize it. He just planted it and walked away. What do you think? It's not going to grow. And then he says, therefore, strengthen your tired hands. I know you're tired. And your weakened knees. I know you're weak. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. I share all of you this message and I wrap up with this. It's the final statement. Do what you will do. 
to be aware. Do something. Do something. I don't care what it is. You don't have to do inductive study. You don't have to do God, man, me, do. You don't have to do chronological. Do something to read God's word and ask him and interact with him. Do it. Just do something. And if you do, God says if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, he'll open up a door to be with you even if you're doubting because he loves you. And if you don't know Christ, can I just tell you that's going to be the thing you're going to read over and over again is your need to submit and surrender to the God of the universe who has given his son for you. The word of God in the flesh. So if you've not submitted to him, if you've not surrendered to him, if you're far from him, can I just encourage you this morning just to go to him and say, God, I'm doubting, but I'm here. I'm doubting, but I'm here. And I believe you'll come near to me. And so I just say, forgive me. Come in, change me. I'm ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you teach us how to pray. You teach us how to share who you are through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that you teach us your word because the Spirit leads us and is called the Spirit of truth. He's called our counselor that is given to us. And the Spirit always leads us, the Bible says, to you, Jesus. That's the scripture. That's what the Bible says. And so we take you at your word. So I ask you this morning, whoever's listening online, whoever's in this room, Lord, I pray they will look deep in their heart. Whether they're doubting, whether they're really going well in their relationship with you, that this morning they would draw near to you and that they would cry out to you and say, God, here I am. And Lord, I pray that they would see that you say, good, I want to talk to you. I want to teach you. I got some places I want you to go and people that I want you to talk to and that you'll begin to do a work in them that in due time will yield its fruit. They may not see it in a week or a month, may not be a year, but Lord, eventually your fruit is produced and then we step back and say, wow, I didn't do that. That was all you. And we stand in awe. So we praise you and thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the gift that it is and thank you that you give us so many tools and resources miraculously for us to know it. Help us to obey in your name.